Managing type 1 diabetes can be difficult and challenging. Today, a management revolution is underway that can help us all live happier and healthier lives. I'm Cliff Sherb, founder of Glucose Advisors. I'll be sitting down with expert guests exploring topics in the advancements of the science of diabetes management, their personal type 1 diabetes stories, and details of the latest methods to help take control of T1D. We hope these stories inspire you to take control of your diabetes, health, and well-being, learning more about the advancements that exist to live a better life with T1D. For more episodes, visit our community at glucoseadvisors.com. Learn from our team of advisors and find out more about space available in our programs. All right, so welcome to the podcast, Dr. Katherine Yeckel. Thanks so much for joining me. Uh, really excited to have you on today. It's really fun to be here. It's a great topic and, a, and terrific to work with you again. Yeah, li likewise. So let me give our audience here uh, an intro to who you are. So uh, Dr. Yeckel, okay, is uh, awesome. She is the assistant professor to the clinical public health and environmental health at Yale New Haven. She received her master's degree in exercise physiology from the University of Pittsburgh and a doctoral degree from the University of Texas Medical Branch at Galveston in preventative medicine and community health in the areas of human metabolism and nutrition. In collaboration with researchers at the UTMB Galveston and more recently with researchers and clinicians specializing in pediatric and adult endocrinology at the Yale School of Medicine. And she focused her research and interests along the spectrum of insulin resistance and beta cell dysfunction. So personally, I have worked with Dr. Yeckel on several and previous interviews and, and have always enjoyed our discussions together and uh, her professional experiences, especially with nutrition and metabolism. And she's been doing 35 years in this space. So can't wait to talk to you today about uh, all that is uh, diabetes and insulin. So with that, welcome. Thank you very much. It's, it really is nice to be here. Um, one thing that your, your audience may not know, and one thing that might be very relevant for today is that I, I'm somebody who is, you know, a huge longtime runner. I've also had the fortune to, to test both athletes and couch potatoes and, and people who are, who are very much little old ladies <laughs> and the, the, the youngsters. So it's been, it's been I've had a, a very, as, as you point out, I've had a very eclectic mix of career. Um, so it's, full yeah, I've pretty much hit the full spectrum. <laughs> so I'll start off with an easy question for you today. today. Uh, easy question, kickoff question. Uh, tell us a little bit more about what you had for breakfast and why. It's a you silly know, you just question. You yeah. just broke up. Oh, You're okay. breaking up. Oh, I'm breaking up. Uh, the yeah. question was, tell us what you had for breakfast and why. Oh, okay. Well, I've, I've been making my own grindola that has spent grains because my husband's been making beer <laughs> during this pandemic. And we figured out that spent grains have like, they don't have sugar. They have all the the cool fiber and a lot of protein left. And so we've been doing a little bit of oats and a little bit of, a wee bit of honey, but, but this sort of mixture of spent grains. And then I put some banana and some, I, I use breakfast to, to put in lots of fruit units. I'm a big, big fan of that in the morning. So, and coffee. 
a very good way to supercharge the day and uh, keep an extended day, a long day going. That's for certain. I, I like that type of a breakfast where, you know, it, it knocks out any hunger that could be present and uh, carries you throughout the day. And, and that's a smart way to eat too, right? I mean, having a, a big breakfast too. So uh, good. Well, that's going to sync up nicely with our, our topic to today about uh, talking about insulin sensitivity. So we know changes in insulin demand and sensitivity can have an impact on short-term and long-term on type 1 diabetes management and health. Maybe you can share a little bit about um, your thoughts on that subject specifically. Yeah, that's a really good um, point. There's, I, I think there's, for, for this audience in particular, I think it's really good to understand that we have two things that we can kind of control. And one really is sort of the demand that would normally be there on the pancreas, right? Sort of the food choice end of things and also the sensitivity of the tissues. And it isn't just muscle, it's, it's your liver and your Oedipus tissue, but muscle sort of is that high-end capacity. Um, it's your big sink to take up carbohydrate, to take up those glucose units, to, you know, to store as glycogen if you can. So to me, it's, it's the idea that we have control, particularly you know, the body would love to be insulin sensitive. So the idea that we have control of that with exercise and being very active is, is really important. But we shouldn't forget that we also have basic control and normal physiology, normal metabolism of demand placed on the system. If you have lots and lots of simple carbs, it doesn't matter who you are, you're going to have to secrete a lot of insulin to put that away if you're just in the resting state. So it's, it's good to realize because I think it, it, it's, you know, I can see it from the aging spectrum. If you're a little old lady, little old guy, and you're gonna eat lots and lots of high, you know, fast carbs, you're in trouble because you don't usually have the ability to secrete. Or if you're some youngster and yeah, you're really insulin resistant, but you can still put out buckets of insulin, you're, st you're still good. But somebody with type one, that's really hard because you, you've got to decide what you're going to do and how much insulin you're going to take to accommodate. So it's, it's, it's tough. You've got to think of both ends of the spectrum in terms of both the sensitivity side and the demand side. Yeah, I think that's why a lot of type one diabetics tend to do much better on a diet that's more consistent. You know, their routines tend to be much more consistent. Uh, I, I like to help people a little bit get out of that, that box so that they can have a little more freedom in their life. And a lot of things we do, you know, is try to figure out, okay, well, what are you doing on some of these more active days? What are you doing on days that are more stressful? And do you, how do you modify your diet to retain some of that sensitivity? And I, I think sensitivity is something that helps us uh, to, to balance blood sugar on the type one diabetes sides of things for certain. So, so question for you, can you uh, explain for our audience the drivers of insulin sensitivity and what someone with type one diabetes should know to help them balance blood sugars and potentially their weight? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question, particularly right now in the pandemic, because many of your audience has probably, has probably realized stress plays a huge role. So yeah, we've heard of exercise and physical activity and weight and you know, keeping your weight down, keeping a, a more normal weight is so huge for, so those, those are the normal ones that we typically think about for the drivers of insulin sensitivity. 
because it, it is a needle, right? If the needle goes one direction towards sedentary, you're actually becoming more resistant. So I love that you framed it from a sensitivity perspective, because to me, that's like, okay, that's, that's true health, right? Not just focusing on disease and whatever, but it is a needle in it, and it is one of those things that, that, it's, that it's good to pay attention to, because if, you know, I can take a, a top athlete and if they take a couple of days off, they're going to become more insulin resistant. So it's, <laughs> it, is, it is a spectrum of a, of a needle where you're like pushing it one way if you're very much being sedentary, even if it's the intent is just to relax. And then if you're, if you're being very active, you can, you know, you can be very sensitive. So obviously the, the, the exercise physical activity is promoting it, the blood sugar. So it's, it's, you know, if you're not getting restorative sleep, it can really jack up your blood sugars to anything that you're eating. And that's anybody. It doesn't matter if you have type one or not. So it's an additional challenge for type one. And it's the same with stress. And they know with, in, in terms of research that chronic stress, A1C levels go up. So it's not, it's, it's not only the acute, it's that, you know, your, your, your point about the long-term, you know, exercise can do something in the short-term, but it can also do things in the long-term. And that's where body weight comes into play. If you can start getting more insulin sensitive and back off some of your insulin levels, it can help you actually start to, to better control your weight because otherwise you're sort of chasing that, that insulin dose with food yeah. <laughs> because you've become more sensitive. People forget about that. It's like those things need to all work in concert and change. So if you find yourself gaining weight, maybe your insulin is too high because you're now insulin sensitive because you've been working out. <laughs> yeah, and all that, it's interesting, you know, the, the cortisol component and stress, right? We we're talking about the pandemic and right, if you have very high baseline levels of cortisol, then your insulin demand as a type one diabetic, you can see it. You can just see the, the baseline insulin just drifting upwards. And that's a big chunk of your day or your overnight where, you know, normal metabolism would see, you know, the ability to mobilize fat more readily. And, and you can't really do that when you have lots of insulin, which is telling your body to burn the glucose and store fat more or less. So, uh, you know, playing around and looking at that total daily dose from the type one diabetes standpoint is huge. And to your point about, uh, you know, looking at and investigating that, that cortisol, I think it's huge. Yeah, and it's not just, I think what, what we forget sometimes is that there's that acute stress, which cannot, which actually isn't necessarily just cortisol. It's your, it's your, you know, your adrenaline, right? The epinephrine, the norepinephrine, and all of those things are all countering your, you know, <laughs> your ability to, to regulate um, even normally for somebody to regulate insulin, but also to, to for glucose metabolism. But, you know, it's, it's that balance that's, that, as you said, that's, that's really making it difficult to burn fat, to have that turnover so that it's really shutting down the Oedipus tissue so that you can't get that fuel delivered to your muscle to burn it, right? Um, so it's an extra, it really is an extra challenge because if you're constantly with too much insulin, it's 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 like you can't you can't burn enough fat. Um, so weight maintenance becomes a real real problem. Yeah, it, I guess uh, a little bit of meditation goes a long way. <laughs> yeah, well, even just 
people don't realize that just even taking that deep breath starts to turn things around. So, so there are little things, taking a really gentle walk, taking a deep breath, laughing, <laughs> laughing actually can help <laughs> bring your glucose down. So there, there are things that, that, that can work that are, that are, um, that are simple, right? <laughs> yeah, that's a new one. Laugh to lower your insulin. I like that one. <laughs> Just laugh your insulin down. Your glucose, right. Uh, it's too funny. Uh, so uh, another question I have for you, you know, what what can we also learn from the, the age differences with insulin sensitivity? So, you know, you have research and publications surrounding, you know, yeah. adolescents as well as older individuals with regards to metabolism and insulin. So what can we learn there? Yeah, it's really good to, to realize that, that the lifespan, where you are, regardless of who you are, um, it, it can has a, has a profound impact on insulin resistance, right, or sensitivity. So everyone, doesn't matter who you are, becomes more insulin resistant when you're a teenager. That puberty, that, that whole time of crazy growth and everything, when we still don't necessarily understand why that is. But there's, there's, that's huge. And then if you add overweight on top of that, those individuals become really insulin resistant. So I would say that the group that is the most insulin resistant is if you're sort of in that young teenage years and you're overweight to obese, right? Mm -hmm. They have profound insulin resistance. The clamp, the fancy clamp studies, we have to actually give more insulin, more than like double that of, of a normal adult study because the insulin resistance is so high. So they, those individuals are having to normally secrete tons and tons and tons of insulin. So if you're type one and you're in this, this sort of teenage years and, you and you're struggling with weight in part because of the insulin, in part because of everything else, you, you, know, you have that extra burden there just because you're a teenager, let alone anything else, and then adding weight and, and all these other factors on top of it. Pregnancy. So anything, you know, if you're a woman and you decide to have a kid and, and pregnancy has a normal time for insulin resistance late in pregnancy. So we know that that's, that's normal. So of course, pregnancy is another challenge for type one. And then of course, as we age, you know, basically most people aren't as active. So <laughs> part, it really is, this is preventive in so many ways. It's just, if, you know, if you stay active, you can do so much to help. But of course, at the aging end of the spectrum, you're also losing your, you know, the beta cell mass is lower. So in other words, you don't have the capacity to secrete, to overcome that insulin resistance often. So the exercise really helps, but oftentimes it's, you know, it, it, it's a, it's a, it's a factor of just aging. Um, and it, but you can do something about that. You can stay very active and keep those tissues healthy and, and functioning well. Right. Yeah. So it sounds like basically you know, whether you're uh, younger or older, right? I mean, being active, just thinking throughout your day that there's going to be some sort of movement, whether it's, you know, cleaning or chores or actual sports, right? It is, is huge in, in balancing. And I, and I know that from my own personal experience and, and living as an athlete and uh, also just my own day-to-day -day life, uh, that's, that's the way I live because it just makes it a lot easier to balance. And and when you don't move, you, you really see those insulin demands go quite significantly higher. Yeah. So go ahead. No, I was, I was going to put, um, I was going to add to that, but I, now I can, never mind. go ahead. I, I'll think of it again. Sure. 
Yeah, you we'll come back. triggered something and then I'll, I'll, I'll think of it in a second. <laughs> so I have a question that is, what would you say is the largest misconception about insulin and metabolism that persists today for our, for our type one diabetic audience to think about? Yeah, that, that I, I actually think it's not, and it sort of bit was a big aha for me as well, is that the fact that tiny little changes in insulin. It's the nimbleness of the system that should normally be there. And, and so those ultra long lasting insulins and things really make it so that it's difficult to have the system nimble. So say you take a really intense exercise. I've done studies where I've done, you know, maximal exercise, uh, you know, consumption tests, right? So you're taking the people on a treadmill or in the cycle and you go all the way to maximum and you hold them there and then, and then they recover. Well, glucose goes sky high because of course now you've disconnected what the muscle is trying to take up, which it's trying to take up a lot of glucose, right? And what the, the liver has been putting out. And so the, liver, the muscle, you stop exercising and the liver has to kind of catch up. So what happens is you get this tiny little pulse of insulin at five minutes, whoop, it's up and down, a tiny. And yet that's the switch. And so your stress hormones could be sky high in everyone, right? Athletes, normal, whatever, whoever you are. And yet you need that little insulin. So if you're type one and you don't have that little insulin, your glucose is, they've done this with special client studies, right? Your, your glucoses will stay high. And so there has been some really cool work that's, that's showed, okay, so say you do like a tough resistance exercise or a tough hit workout and you're glucoses are high in type one, say 15 minutes after where they've tried that pulse of insulin. And, this, and it's helpful, right? It's just that not everybody's the same. How much should you actually pulse? And because they know that if you do too much, then you set the person, you know, you set somebody up for hypoglycemia. But it's really great. I think it's, it's important to know that, that the body normally works in tiny little pulses, right? not to a meal, obviously you have to, but even to a meal, what you, you know, what the body wants to do is, is send up insulin and then bring it back down again, right? It doesn't yeah. want it to stay up forever. With the obese kids, it stays up for a really long time and that sets them up for all kinds of problems. So it, it is even, even in, even when you eat, it's this little, there's this little pulse before you even start absorbing the glucose is <laughs> there's this tiny little pulse of insulin normally. And so sometimes I wonder, well, have we, have we sort of done a disservice with type one and not tried to figure out how to help it be, you know, the, the strategies be a bit more nimble. And I know they've done pulses. So, so, you know, I think the technology is going to help a lot because if I, I don't, I, I, I've, I've seen work where it's even the pulses instead of continuous infusion of insulin helps. And so, so it, yeah. that's what normally happens. I think there will be, future algorithms, right, that will make those pulses for you, right? Very short and sharp uh, amounts of insulin that just kind of get things tipping in the right direction. We kind of suggested already for a lot of our, our patients, and that is to, you know, get ahead of the curve with some meals, right, and, and do a small pre-dose just beforehand to kind of get things tipping in the right direction so that you don't run into the buzzsaw of a meal that kind of just elevates blood sugar right when you get started. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, how, yeah, especially if it's subcutaneous or, you know, so in other words, it, it, it really is, 
it's difficult to figure out. I, I think the work that you're doing, I think the glucose advisors, the, you know, the, your algorithms that you're, you're starting, to, you're, you've been developing are just fantastic in that way because it really is trying to get people to, to take a step back, look at the big picture because ultimately you have to look at the context. It's yesterday, it's today, it's what you want to do later. It's not just in the moment. And that's sort of that long-term playbook right? That you have to start to figure out, you know, what did I have for breakfast? I mean, we know even for, for, for somebody who's eaten breakfast, say you have the cornflakes versus the muesli, even if it's the same amount of carbohydrate, it has a huge difference in metabolism. If you've had the muesli, you're going to burn twice as much fat at, you know, at lunchtime exercising than you are if you've eaten the cornflakes. I mean, in, in terms of normal metabolism. So, so it, it really is impressive how this sort of nimbleness and not putting a lot, if you can play the game of not having to have that much insulin, just enough, but not too much, um, you, can, you can have the rest of the metabolism kick in more normally. Yeah, it is pretty amazing too, the, you know, certain individuals, smaller individuals clearly need a lot less insulin. And then when you start to try and dose larger individuals too, uh, how much do they need versus, you know, some of these doses are, they're, they're, it's crazy how different they are. Uh, and that type of dosing strategically is hard to find that information anywhere in the web. And most of the work that I did early on was through my own personal experience, but then translated over into a lot of other athletes. And then we normalized that for even just general folks. And what you come up and find is that, okay, well, what is the lifestyle that somebody's living, you know, in the last 48 hours? What are they living right now? And where do they want to go? And one of the challenges is if you have some insulins that are these subcutaneous long acting insulins, right? They are going crossing <laughs> multiple lifestyles uh, over multiple <laughs> days, right? And I, I don't know about you, but uh, you know what I'm going to do after this call and what I did before are two very different things. So it's, you know, it, it's, it's really a challenge. And, and even some of the closed loop systems that we're seeing come online now, which are really amazing but they still are reactive to what's happening in a snapshot and all the information that we can feed that system is still, you know, it, it's, uh, it's hard to program something that, that uh, good. So we'll see. I, I think that there's lifestyle information that needs to be pumped in, into these systems and make them better. But, uh, you know, there are still misconceptions about how we use insulin. And I think, I think, you know, you're, you're spot on with, uh, how they work and how they're operating. Yeah. Yeah. I, th I think, I think as a first approximation, it's really good for people to start to figure out what is their go-to style, right? Um, it's sort of part of this bigger playbook. It's, it's, can you figure out what normally works pretty well and keeps you stable? Because, you know, I, I remember reading this, this interview with a really frustrated athlete that, that talked about in the end, he's like, I just had to be really super boring. <laughs> I had to, and it's the consistency, right? It's the idea. I'm sure you can relate to that. It's yeah. like, I knew on these certain training days, I just had to eat this, you know, this, this basic meal strategy that I knew was going to be okay for me. And, and so part of it really is figuring out what is your go-to strategy, even if it's boring, you know? <laughs> but I love that. I, I just thought that was great because it's, it's exactly true. right. 
Dr. Jekyll, it, it's completely boring, some of the athletic stuff that we do, especially <laughs> in the endurance sports where, realm where it just takes forever. You got to, you know, okay, go ride your bike for five hours and do it the same way each week for five hours. So I can recall a lot of the algorithm building that we did and I did was, uh, you know, you, you, you had to consistently do stuff so that you could get results, right? And then you could introduce some variability. All right, let's sprinkle in a little bit more of this. Let's try eating a little bit more of that. And let's see how it affects weight, performance. And and again, for most of the people out there, you're not an elite athlete or that's okay. But when you try to normalize that then down to a, uh, an individual who's just trying to get through day-to-day -day life, it's, it's really much, much easier. But to understand that we want to have lots of variability in our life. We want to be able to be spontaneous. And, and I think that that's the challenge is, is to meet lifestyle with, you know, the tools that we currently have available. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. So I would love to hear from you, Dr. Yekko, if you would share with us just three things from your experience that you think, uh, T1D should know and really why um, that would help them maybe on their T1D journey. I think hmm, that's great. I think that the first one I would say is don't, I, I think you have to enter into a win-win negotiation with your body. <laughs> In other words, you, you actually have to have a compact that, that, that's, that's going to have you help your body help you in terms of some right. of these decisions, right? And that seems maybe kind of silly, but at the same time, I think it's easy to be in denial. It's easy to get frustrated. It's easy to, to get mad in a, in a sense. And I, and I think instead it's like be engaged, right? Figure, you know, start to take a real interest and figure out, you have to be a super sleuth, right? And, and figure out what works, what doesn't work normally. And then start to, as you said, you start to sprinkle things in. I would say, do it really slowly. And, and that way you change your exercise slowly, change your diet slowly and see what sort of works. I also think huge one, don't chase, you know, try not to chase your tail. In other words, <laughs> if you start to see that, but I do think that, that people start to, they, they don't want to change their insulin dose. So in the, in the end, it's like you're eating more just because you have too much insulin on board. So it, it, it's, it, it is a vicious cycle sometimes <laughs> in terms of the insulins or the fact that maybe at some point you need to enter the conversation with your physician about changing the preparation so that it isn't this really ultra long formulation that that may in a sense now with your active lifestyle might not work very well um you know those aren't things you know everyone's different everybody has to have those conversations um but yeah chasing <laughs> stop chasing your tail is i think a big one for people who are really the people who are trying to also lose weight but also people who are trying to get to the next level in terms of their fitness and then uh, you know as we've been talking think big you know think about it as a playbook that you're writing and you're going to edit and you're going to re-edit and, and it's lifelong and I hope everybody sort of understands that playbook analogy because I think it's quite real I mean it's a sports analogy but I I do think you bring a, a, a basic characteristic of who you are and what you do to the table but you have to be willing to take on the challenge of what's today bringing how much sleep did I have last night you know how much stress am I going to be under and and start to really think about it as a bigger picture um, so those are the those are the things that I think of That's right great. away that are um, that hopefully would help people. <laughs> That's great. I love the playbook analogy. I, I guess I would say it, 
I feel like when I was younger, I inherited like a huge playbook and I was just trying all the different plays because they just seemed exciting. And, and now I'm to the point where it's like, okay, this is a really condensed, good, solid go-to playbook that I, I can go to at any time, even though the plays are quite dynamic. So maybe early on there were a lot of plays, but now it's it's much more of a distilled uh, thing. And I think that that's the challenge is, right? You accrue a lot of mileage as a type one diabetic learning what works somewhat for you and also what you know others who are successful in blood sugar man management are doing. So uh, it, it's, uh, it, we, we like to have good plays. <laughs> <laughs> It's simple plays, most people, you know. <laughs> so we have some questions from our community for you, and uh, I'll, I'll kick it off with one of our questions from our community members that says, what are the best foods to eat as a T1D? What would you say are the worst? Well, let's start with the worst. To me, the worst are is the processed food, and that's true for anyone. I just think that, but particularly for, for type one diabetes, there's this, you know, processed foods are like baby food. And so the problem is, is that they are, they are just hitting your system like a tsunami in terms of nutrients. And there's no, your GI tract doesn't have to process them. They basically just get absorbed. So I think you're not giving yourself any time. I, th I think the, the, the best foods are obviously, I mean, there's no special diet for type one. Everyone's totally different. But I, I do think that it's, it's very striking. Even if you go online and look at, say, even if you want to eat a chocolate chip cookie and you go online and look at the, the, the homemade cookie versus the, versus the store-bought cookie, it's unbelievable how different they are and how much extra sugar is in things that are processed and store-bought or even that hamburger, right? The, 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 the McDonald's versus the homemade kinds of things. So I think some of the worst is, is you know, not knowing what the ingredients really are because oftentimes if you're not preparing the food, there's a lot of extra stuff in it. Um, yeah, there's, there's the a lot best? of stress for type ones when they go out to eat, right? Oh man. Like, hey, I, I don't know what's in this. And, and there's so many additives and, and special sauces and that's, that's just extra stress, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there's so many. And generally speaking, there's more sugar, right? There's more sugar, there's more salt, there's more fat because they, they really, they know people will, you know, you have that response to those ingredients that, ooh, this tastes good, right? So it's, it's positively frightening when you look at the huge difference in terms of, of homemade versus not. Um, in terms of really good foods, you know, I, again, it's pretty, it's becoming pretty universal for any, you know, any chronic and global burden that the, the ranking right now is you should eat more whole grains, you should eat more vegetables and fruits, you should, you know, lower the salt content, you should um, eat more nuts and seeds, you know, and that's a really good one for type one, because I think the biggest difference, and fiber is the last one, but I think I think one of the, the, the great things to think about nutrition-wise that are sort of distinct for type one is to slow down your eating, right? And, and in part, we know pretty well, which is normal type one, pre-diabetes, type two diabetes, the whole spectrum, food order matters and that you can completely dampen the glucose response 
if you start with the sort of the vegetables and protein and save your carbohydrate for last. And I think that's really impressive. The, the, I've seen the data, it's really impressive. So part of it is slowing down and saying, okay, I'm gonna eat my meal in 15 minutes. Maybe I can chomp on a few almonds or something. In other words, what can you do to fool your stomach? Cause it's basically fooling your stomach not to have such fast gastric emptying so yeah. that your intestine doesn't see this surge in nutrients. Um, but it's, it's really impressive with the exact same food, the food order matters, and that can completely sort of help and buffer the response, which again means less insulin. I think pain, one of the cool things that's starting to come out is the, is the insulin food index out of Sydney, where, mm. so it's not just glycemic index and load, it's like well, really what, what, what happens with the insulin response? And, and I'm sure most of the, of the, you know, your listeners realize that, you know, white rice and potato and pasta are very, very different, even if they're exactly the same amount of carbohydrate, right? They've done these very controlled studies. And, and part of that is actually the insulin response. And so it's, which, you know, obviously you have to take into account. So it's not, it's not like just what you expect it from the carbohydrate. So I love that they're actually starting that nuance as well, which of course is another variable, which is a bummer, but it does start to help you understand that we don't know everything, right? And what's, what's impressive is the fact that we understand about what, 35% of who's gonna respond, you know, what the variability, what accounts for that variability in terms of what you need for insulin, just simply based on the, that food that you're supposedly eating. And that's, that's not that very means, much of the variability. <laughs> that's exciting, the type one diabetic, but we'll be seeing on package labels, you know, uh, insulin response curves, uh, that would be kind of neat uh, to, to see when that's gonna actually hit the bottom line would make a big difference on the dosing, wouldn't it? Yeah, I think, I think it's actually, it'll, I'll be very curious to see what they do with it. But I think that's actually kind of exciting because it's, it's been very much, you know, they've always known that the glycemic index and the glycemic, that there's issues with that. Um, but, but they haven't really translated that to what's, well, what's the insulin response needed to even accomplish this, right? Um, so yeah. it's, it's, you take for for instance, I was really surprised to see that lentils, which have this nice low glycemic index, so they are slow, but they actually take a fair amount of insulin, yeah. as as does beef. So, so certain meats actually take a, a a high amount versus other meats, which is kind of interesting. You know, obviously there are amino acids that require an insulin surge, but but it is, it is interesting to see the same class of foods and it, it isn't just what their glucose, I mean, it's the insulin that, that, that's required to get it there. It's amazing. The stomach is like uh, a highway system that has cars and trucks and everything on it going at different speeds <laughs> and trying to figure out, you know, how to lane change with insulin is, is tricky. And uh, I think that's one of the most challenging things about diabetes is its imperfect, you know, nature that we, we have great tools, but it's still really tough to keep the blood sugar between the rails. But, you know, if you can understand what it is you're eating and have some reproducing of what you're doing every time at meals, right, that makes life a lot easier, but spontaneity is cool too. So, we, you know, we try to indulge on, on all different things and, and not miss out on some of the things that li in life, I think, with eating too. So, we try to coach people through that and, and have them uh, have their cake and eat it too when it's their birthday. Yeah. 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 That's good. <laughs> so 
Uh, it, this is a good question from our community too. Uh, a hot button topic. Would you recommend a high fat diet and avoid carbohydrates as a T1D? Me? No. I, I'm, I, you know, everybody has what works. So I'm, you know, diets are diets are diets and, and people use them for different ways. But to me, I am really not a fan of being very specific. I think there are way in part, you know, there's so many fruits and vegetables and things that people may start to try to avoid because they want to stay away from carbs. And yet that's where you get, you know, your potassium and your and all sorts of vitamins and minerals and things that are so key for, for any health condition and health in general. So I'm I, I just I just think that that it's good. I am not a fan of process. The, the one diet I would say again, you know, limit the processed food. It doesn't mean you can't have some now and again, like you said, you want to be spontaneous, you want to have, but but no, I I I guess I'm I am a big fan of a mixed diet. Um, and, and that the more colorful, the better, the more, and, and I think, I think, you know, the mixture in type one is, is important. I think that, that the foods work well together, that it's nutrient dense, that you have to more so than, than a lot of people can get away with. You generally are eating mixed macronutrient type types of contents at every meal to try to just smooth things and, and fudge that. <laughs> fudge that insulin um, error. Um, but yeah, no, so I, I guess I, I'm not a fan of somebody, I'm, I'm, I'm not somebody who's a fan of just going like all like a high fat diet or yeah. I would echo the same. My, my own personal philosophy is that it is, it is not that you can't have, uh, you know, just fats and be successful on that with your blood sugar because people do it really well. But yeah. their health, I think, and longevity is quite, you know, there's some question to that. And it does take some time to adapt to those types of diets, which is also challenging. And then you're introducing a heck of a lot of calories into those types of diets. And if there's even a modest amount of carbohydrate in there, that can really set things off in terms of raising total insulin throughout the day. And fat, you know, it still is going to raise your total insulin demand, right? It's, it's going to extend that basal endogenous need indefinitely. So unless you're uh, really uh, going all in and, and not everybody goes all in on these type one diabetes, uh, high fat diets necessarily, they kind of like, well, I'll just have a little bit. And, and that uh, can challenge either weight gain and, and energy demand too. So I, I, I kind of agree with you. A balanced plate tends to work out really nicely. Uh, moderation, and you know, when you're looking at that plate, you're like, oh, do I have my carb? Do I have my fat? Do I have my protein? Do I have my vegetables? And you know, that nice symmetry of, of the way things are balanced on a plate uh, tends to work out nicely when you're dosing for, for things, but uh, it is still, again, an imperfect, uh, imperfect science. Uh, I, I think protein uh, should be pushed much more into uh, yeah. a, a type one's diet, much more helpful. Yeah. I, I think that slows things. I think it's important because it can be, type one can be catabolic if it's not correct. So uh, yeah, yeah. I, I think protein is a, is a huge consideration. I think another health issue that we're only starting to become aware of, and I don't, I actually don't know if I, can, I, can't, I haven't seen any studies for specifically for type one, but it's the whole issue of the microbiome in the gut. 
in the microbiome species, they all want to eat complex carbohydrates. So if you, you know, that, that hasn't been processed in the lay, right? That, that, well, you all of a sudden are kind of starving your microbiome if you like limit carbs. <laughs> so they're, they're into all the fiber, you know, <laughs> that, that, that evolutionarily, we're, we were most, much more at that end of the spectrum, right? The, the heavy, very complex carbs with whatever. I think, yeah, I, I, it's, it's, um, yeah, I'm, I'm a fan of mixed, mixed foods. Yeah. Yeah. Switch, switching it up and, and you can certainly think more about the timing of when you're eating things and why, right. You could choose to have maybe good fats and, and non-saturated fats, you know, before you're going to go be active, for instance, which will help, you know, mitigate the amount of insulin you need during an activity, for instance. Uh, but there's lots of different considerations, or maybe you're timing some of these carbs more, after uh, act being active because the insulin demand is a little bit, um, you know, you're going to be more sensitive and you don't need to take as much and, you know, it'll work a little bit. Things will work better. They just do that way in the recovery process. But uh, yeah, interesting. And I know that uh, a lot of uh, different people have different ways that they want to live their life. I don't think that's for us to debate, but it is a challenge nonetheless, either way. Uh, my question for you uh, is, uh, and not from our community, is what is your biggest aha moment you ever had as a metabolic researcher? Metabolism is fascinating to me, and I wanted to know what your biggest aha moment was. You know, it is totally fascinating to me. I I think that that little insulin pulse, <laughs> seeing this massive, and I literally had people that their catecholamines, so their stress hormones were were in the thousands, <laughs> and have this little insulin pulse to thirty five, <laughs> be able to completely turn everything around. I, I it just like it flabbergasts me. Um, so the idea that insulin stands alone to all of this whole arsenal of, of, of stress hormones that are geared toward trying to, you know, basically increase blood sugar and that it can have such, it's the mighty me, you know, it's, it's the mighty mouse, the little tiny thing. It's just unbelievable. But I think it could also help start to inform the future of type one and the whole idea of, of we've been hitting it with a hammer and maybe we should be thinking about ways to, that pulses can actually work to our advantage. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's very fascinating. We see, uh, again, on the more athletic extreme sides of things, these things play out where, you know, the late stages of uh, an ultra marathon, for instance, the amount of insulin you need is infinitesimally small to, yeah. to leverage and take in exponential amounts of glucose that in the start of that activity, you would need, like you said, that blunt hammer of five, 10 units maybe to absorb, which might only take uh, 0.2 units, you know, uh, dosing that is uh, really heady when you start to think about uh, trying to get that right and why, why type one is so difficult for that reason. So I appreciate the, the insights there. That, that, is a, that is a good aha moment to have. So um, listen, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. And uh, just before we let you go, can you share any uh, personal goals you have with us in the future? What's in store for you? And, uh, and also how can folks learn more about you and, and what it is you do? Wow. Well, I think for first off, it's been great to be here today. So I hope that some, some of the things that we talked about resonate with your listeners. 
Um, I've been transitioning, particularly in the pandemic, I've been transitioning more toward, I've been doing a lot of teaching, a lot of consulting. Um, you know, I've, I've had these opportunities sometimes, like today's conversation, I've worked with, you know, museums of all things and different different entities that have been really fun. And I, I it's, it's a breath of fresh air when you're, when you're doing everything else. So I've been collaborating more in research and, but I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I'm sort of loving the idea of, of, you know, trying to help larger groups of people kind of embrace metabolism and get to understand what's happening with exercise and diet and nutrition and metabolism. So it's, I, I like these opportunities and I've definitely been transitioning more toward them. So it's fun. That's very nice. And, and I think it's an exciting job you have and, and a really important needed one. So uh, you're doing some work that, you know, is uh, exciting field and, and all of us generally need to live better and longer lives. So <laughs> we need more uh, Dr. Yuckles out there uh, giving us the consulting <laughs> advice to help us out. So I want to thank you for, you know, sharing your wisdom for our type ones and uh, listen, all the very best to you. Thanks for coming on and uh, well, I'll, I'll hope to do another podcast again with you soon. <laughs> Great. Well, thanks for having me and the, to everybody who's listening in. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to the Glucose Advisors podcast. For more episodes, visit our community at glucoseadvisors.com. Learn from our team of advisors and find out more about space available in our programs. Head on over to Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you find your podcast to rate, subscribe, or leave a review. Until next time, take control, stay inspired, and live a better life with T1D.